we're going to go straight into 1 Peter uh, chapter 3 this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, would you open with me to 1 Peter chapter 3? We are going to start in uh, verse 12 together, uh, picking up where we left off last week. We're continuing a living proof of a loving God. And so Peter is advocating, pe- Peter is begging, people, Peter is pleading with his listeners, stay the course, stay the course, stay the course. Stop looking around. I know it's scary out there. Stay the course, stay the course, stay the course. And he's going to continue with that message uh, this morning as we pick it up in chapter 3, verse 12. And so if this has kind of been a a difficult week for you and you've looked around and and everywhere you look, it's, oh, this is difficult, this is difficult, this is difficult. Uh, Every relationship, it's strained and there's tension and there's something disrupting peace Stay the course, stay the course, stay the course. Um, I think maybe how uh, the coaches might have gathered their team uh, a few weeks ago for the Super Bowl and said, forget all of the distractions, right? Don't pay attention to the lights. Don't pay attention to the crowd. Don't pay attention to the really long timeouts and the commercial breaks. Stay the course. Focus on the task at hand. Know your job and do your job. The only way we get where we want to go as a team is we know our job and we do our job. Uh, let's pick it up. First Peter chapter three. We'll read verses eight, nine, 10, 11, and 12. Uh, the first point this morning for you note takers, entrust your life to the Lord. Entrust your life to the Lord by loving well. First Peter chapter three, verse eight it says this. He says, finally, all of you have a unity of mind sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Verse 10, for whoever loves life, and, and this begins a quote from the book of Psalms. Verse 10, for whoever desires to love life, and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we have some uh, some affirmations, some commendations, some do this and then some don't do these things, right? He says, be like-minded, have unity. And so something that you may have heard here or elsewhere in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And just the basic gist is there's a few things we really need to agree on, essentials, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, that he, became, he came because we weren't just spiritually sick. He, became, he came because we are spiritually dead. There's essentials like this being the word of God preserved for us. Everything we need for life and for following Jesus. That God is one and that God is also three. That God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. These are essentials. We need unity in them. In non-essentials, liberty. In other words, in things that aren't that core essential, we have freedom to live differently, even believe differently, respond to the Lord differently in that freedom. Some of you wear suits to church, and some of you would really like to wear flip-flops 
shorts and a Tommy Bahama shirt. We have liberty. There's freedom to follow the Lord even in different ways. Some of us are called into children's ministry. Some are headed to Guatemala. Uh, some don't want to do either of those things. Love to be on stage and, and contribute through your gifts of music. Following the Lord looks differently for some of us. And he says, in all things, charity. We live with understanding of each other that we're wired different. We're gifted different. We're called to, into different places, different careers, different families, different backgrounds of origin, different struggles, different strengths. And so in all of these things, we relate to each other in a way that is understanding. He uses the word sympathetic and later says, uh, seek peace. He says, do these things, then don't do these things. Don't repay evil with evil. Why? Verse 9. Because to this you were called to give a blessing and to bless others. Sorry, to give a blessing and to receive a blessing. And then he goes into the quote from Psalms 34. And so what's interesting to me about Psalms 34 is it essentially says there is a path to that blessing. There is a path for a person who's going to receive an eternal path. And the opposite, of course, is true also. There are a lot of paths that don't lead to that eternal blessing. And so this, this strikes at something that's interesting in Scripture, something that we see in a number of places, the idea being that if we are truly changed internally, it will be reflected externally. That the Bible doesn't ha have a category of people who have been changed by God and then don't listen and follow and obey and love and worship God. There's no such thing as having a new heart and it not showing itself through our desires, through our behavior, through our speech, through our thoughts, through the way that we treat people, that these are wound together. And so he's not saying that to be saved, to become a Christian, to be rescued by God, God is sitting back with a report card and evaluating your merit and your length of service, and then making his judgments. Okay, so this is not like advancing in the military where merit and length of service are essential. This isn't like getting an Eagle Scout badge where your merit, your accomplishments, and your length of service go into determining whether or not you get your Eagle Scout badge or title. I don't know Scouts. I can't pretend. He's not, Peter is not undoing the fact that the only reason I can be saved is because Jesus came, paid the price that I deserve. Again, I'm spiritually dead, not spiritually sick. I need to be made new such that when I entrust my life to him, he's the one with broad shoulders, not me. He holds me close. I'm not holding close to him. And the Father chooses to look at me and to see the righteousness of Jesus applied to my account, right? Imagine getting on your Chase or your Washington Mutual or your uh, Bank of America or whatever your account is and seeing a number with a whole bunch more zeros than what you had, right? Something applied to your account that you didn't earn, deserve. The Father looks at me and sees the righteousness of Jesus, pardons me. So he's not undoing that. He's just saying that if you've been changed, if you've been pardoned, if you've made, been made new, it's going to show itself 
Uh, John 14, 23 and 24 says this. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. The sense, the opposite is, is that if you don't love him, you won't obey his teaching. If I love my wife, I will be helpful. If I love my wife, I will serve her. If I love my wife, I will say kind things to her. If I love my wife, I might do something nice on Valentine's Day. If I don't do any of those things, you probably have reason to say, Nathan, it doesn't seem like you love your wife. Doing those things doesn't make me a great husband. It's a, a natural overflow of loving someone. In 1 John 2, 3 through 5, we see something similar. John says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 4, he says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Essentially, you look like heaven on Sunday and look like hell Monday through Saturday. What the text says is that the love of God is not in you. What the text says is that you're a liar and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so this is not meant to just uh, stir up great confusion and, and fear that it is meant to cause us to take a serious look at our lives and say, is there fruit in keeping with repentance? If you're someone who's maybe prayed a prayer at one time in your life, but your life shows no fruit, that's cause for concern. If you went to middle school camp or high school camp, 20 years ago and there was a bonfire and you were just emotionally stirred to the core and you raised your hand and you said, I want to follow Jesus and everyone got excited and everyone started clapping for you. You went back to your church and you stood up on stage and you told about the great things the Lord did, but your life shows no fruit. The text says that you're a liar and the truth of God is not in you. And so as Peter instructs his listeners about how to live in difficulty, how to entrust their lives to the Lord. He says there is a path for God's people to blessing, and it's not earning its blessing, but it is a path that will mark the life of anyone who has truly been changed. It will mark the life of anyone who's following God. It will mark the life of anyone who loves God. Peter says, don't repay evil for evil. Instead, be a blessing. It is the path to God's blessing and it is the path, it is the mark of one who has received God's blessing. So how do we do that? How, how do we be a blessing, at least as it pertains to what Peter is talking about in this context for his audience? Uh, verse 10 and 11 and 12. Uh, verse 10 says, we must keep our tongues from evil and our lips from deceitful speech. When is your tongue most likely to want to do evil? When someone has said something about you, and you've got to make it right, you've got to defend your good name, you've got to defend your honor, it's usually not hard to keep our tongues from speaking evil when speak, people compliment us. 
when people say nice things about us, when people affirm us and build us up, right? When do we want to do evil with our mouth? Feel attacked? Feel threatened? Feel backed in the corner? Feel mistreated? Entrust your life to the Lord. Entrust your good name to the Lord. Entrust that the Lord can make all things right if and when he wants. It's not your job. Verse 11 says, turn from evil and do good. Again, when do we want to do evil? To our kind neighbor who brings uh, gifts over to our house at the holidays and, and drops cookies off at the door? When do we want to do evil? Maybe to the neighbor whose dog comes over and uses your yard every single morning. When do you want to do evil? To the boss that affirms your contributions to your company, to your place of work, or to the boss who hasn't given you a promotion or said a kind word in five years. When do you want to do evil? Peter says, don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay reviling for reviling. Don't retaliate. Don't get even. Some of you say, I don't get even. I don't have a problem with that. I get ahead. Don't get even. Don't get ahead. Entrust your life to the Lord and love well. Entrust your life to the Lord by trusting him to make all things right if and when he chooses. Uh, Verse 12, they must seek peace and pursue it. Keep your tongue from evil. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. It's assumed from cover to cover that if you are following Christ, you will have to seek peace. It is assumed elsewhere you will have to preserve the spirit of unity in the mix. Why is it assumed that you will have to preserve unity? Why is it commanded to seek peace? Church, if we're around each other for more than five minutes, peace is going to be disrupted, right? People are going to be hurtful towards you with their words, hurtful towards you with their actions. They're going to say things unkind about you to your face. They're going to say things, things unkind about you behind your back, and you're going to have to seek peace. Uh, parents of young kids... If your kid's basketball coach or baseball coach is a jerk, seek peace. If your neighbor treats you horribly, blocks your park, your driveway every day, has dogs barking all night long, blows all the leaves off of their lawn into yours, seek peace with your neighbor. How is this possible? Um, look at verse 12. First uh, Peter three twelve. How, how how is this possible? It's only when the Lord is our judge. It's only when He is number one on the pecking order. It's only when it's Him that we want to please. It's only when we entrust our lives to Him. First Peter three twelve. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you're following him, do you believe that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and that his ears are open to your prayers? Do you believe that he hears? Do you believe that he sees? Do you believe that he's attentive? Do you believe that he's engaged? Are you trying to make things work for yourself because you don't believe he sees? You don't believe he engages. You don't believe he's attentive. You don't believe he hears. Or if you do, you think he's way too slow for you. Do you believe he sees and hears? Do you believe that he stands opposed to the wicked? Ultimately, the only way that this happens in our life 
is if we entrust our lives fully to the one who is our judge. What would it look like if we lived in such a way that reflected that he alone was our judge, not other people, not our neighbors, not our friends, not our family, not a boss, not anyone else that we might want to oppress. What would it look like? What would it look like for our young people? Man, I want my kids to get this. I want the, I want the boys to get that it doesn't matter what their friends are doing. It doesn't matter what other kids or school are doing. It doesn't matter if everyone else is doing something that they want to please God, not everybody else, that they could stand alone and not go with the crowd because they want to please God, not everybody else. I want my daughter to get this. When some knucklehead boy wants to take her out on a date when she's 25, (laughs) I want her to understand the pecking order, and I want her to have God at the top of it, that he's her judge. He's the one she wants to make happy. He's the one that she wants to be pleased with her. She's the one that she serves. Not some boy. What would it look like in our lives? If the Lord was our judge, and we were so confident, so secure in what he's said about us, that it didn't matter what others say about us? What would it look like if we, were, if we were so secure in what he has said is true about us that it didn't matter what others said about us do to us? How would it change your life at work if you trusted that he is your judge, he is overall, he's your provider, not your boss, not your company, Your paycheck is not the source of your provision. God is the source of your provision. How would it change the way you look at your job? If it was rightly placed within the context of Jesus, Lord of all. I think things that are difficult in our life would be less difficult. Some of you have lost jobs recently. It hurts less when we understand that he's the provider, not that paycheck. The thrust of this passage is not some sort of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me kind of message. It's not a just get over it. It's not a what's the deal? What's your problem? Why do you have so little faith that this hurts? That's not the message. The message is that there's this invitation to God's people to so fully entrust him with our lives that what he says about us means more than what anyone could say to us or about us. What we have in him is, is so secure. Earlier, remember in First Peter, it's an eternal inheritance, unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven by God that produces this living hope in us, right from First Peter 1, 3. The call is that we can so entrust our lives to God, be so secure in his love for us, so secure in what he's called us, that by comparison, what others say and do has no matter. It's not sticks and stones may break my bones. It's entrust your life fully to God. And when we do that, we'll be loved well and we'll be able to love well. Uh, The second point this morning is, is this, entrust your future. So the first was entrust your life to the Lord. The second, entrust your future to the Lord uh, by suffering well. Let's read verses 13 through 22 together, the rest of the chapter, 1 Peter 3, 13 through 22. 
So Peter says this, Now then, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, generally, if you do what is good, won't you be affirmed by people in authority over you? Won't you be liked by your friends and neighbors? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So most of the time, people will like you if you're a kind person. But not always. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy. Some of your Bibles say sanctify Christ in your hearts. Some say set apart Christ the Lord as holy. Some say revere Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The assumption is they can see the hope that is in you. The assumption is that it's evident. The assumption is that to be around you is to understand that you live on a different wavelength and that there's a hope about you that is plain to all. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make it a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Okay? So not like a news anchor yelling and screaming, not like a child throwing a tantrum. Make a defense with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Sometimes when we, when we read that verse, and we hit on it once already in the book of 1 Peter, uh, the idea that our, our critics, the idea that those who um, slander our good name, uh, those who would um, be skeptical or critical of faith or of God or of Christianity and might target us, that our good behavior silences them. The, word, uh, the first word um, has like a muzzling sense. And, and so sometimes we think, yes get to put them in their place. Yes, I will win. Yes, they'll shut up and finally recognize. And so I, ju- I just want to say, um, I don't think that's the sense here uh, of the text. And, and so last week I mentioned to you that, that when I was much, much, much younger, younger and much, much, much dumber, um, Nicole and I had a conversation about whose day was harder, hers with the kids, mine at work. I told you that that didn't go well for me. It was a very short conversation. Um, there was a bit of shame uh, on my part. Uh, did she shame me? No. Does she, did she ever bring it up again? No. Uh, did she mock me, laugh at me, belittle me? No. Did I see the error of my ways? Yes. Did I see the error of my ways? Yes. Did my shame lead to a sense of discovery about what was real? Did my shame lead to a sense of discovery of how I had missed the boat? Yes. So in verse 17, when we see that, when we see Peter say that uh, those who slander our good name, maybe those who might lump you in this category and say, you Christians, you're all a bunch of bigots. You Christians, don't you know how much evil has happened in the world because of religion? So that when people say those things, they might see our good lives, see our exemplary deeds, and find Jesus. And the text says that their slander will be silenced, that they will see 
the error of their ways because the hope is that they find Jesus. The hope is not that we're justified. The hope is not that we win. The hope is not that our critical family members are silenced. The hope is that they find Jesus. For it is better, verse 17 says, to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than for doing evil. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. We'll come back to that in a second. While the ark was being prepared in which few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, an appeal or a pledge to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is now at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers, having been subjected to him. Okay, there's a lot going on here. Peter says, people, think Super Bowl, forget the distractions, forget the lights, forget the commercials, forget the endorsements, forget the long halftime, focus, 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 stay the course, know your job, do your job. As a coach to a team, the only way we get where we're going is if we all know our job and we all do our job. Peter takes his listeners and he says, if you do this, most will like you. If you do this, who's going to be against you? But on occasion, you will suffer for righteousness. And if this happens, you are blessed. Uh, that may bring to mind for some of you Luke 6, and 23 that says this, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. In, in school, high school, college, you meet with an academic advisor and they, they guide you, right? They make sure you're on the right path. And in college, they also make sure funding is there. Suffering is, is like that guidance counselor. Suffering reminds you that you're on the right path. Suffering ensures that you're on the right path because it means that we're imitating Jesus. If we suffer for righteousness, suffer for good, suffer because of what he's called us to do. Keep in mind where we've been with chapter 2 and chapter 3, right? The call to yield to even an immoral and unjust and unfair government in the context of marriage. The calling on husbands to love your wife as Christ loved the church, to give for her beyond what seems reasonable, to sacrifice for her beyond what is even imaginable, and for wives to husbands uh, to yield even to unjust and unfair and immoral men. He's just thrown a wrench into every relationship that these people had and said, stay the course, do what is unnatural so that by your exemplary deeds, the lost people around you, those far from Jesus around you, will see your good deed and find Jesus. They will see your life and they will find Jesus. So he's just given them all of this. And now he says, stay the course. Be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Because if you live this way, 
people will see and it won't make sense to them. And in some cases that will lead to suffering. In some cases that will lead to an opportunity for you to explain the hope that you have. Why shouldn't God's people be afraid or uh, tremble? The text there says, when you suffer for righteousness, don't be afraid of what they say to you. Don't be afraid of what you might suffer. I think if we're honest, many of us, maybe we look at what's happening in our country 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, uh, there's a sense of fear that we have. There's a sense that uh, our rights are taken, will be taken away. There's a sense that maybe our ability to worship, our ability to gather uh, is going to be in some way strained. Uh, in general, in many communities still, churches are seen as a good thing for a community and Christians are seen as people that, that do well for their neighborhoods and, and are good for society and that Christian virtue is valuable for our country and for civility. Some of us have a sense that, that it might not be that way in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And to identify with a church uh, m- might be likened to identifying with a hate group. That's scary. That, that's terrifying. You think about maybe your employer one day doing a background check and checking to see if you have any religious affiliation. That's a scary thing. Peter says, don't be afraid. Don't be timid. Don't be scared. From Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? From the same chapter, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing in creation can separate us from the love of God. Uh, Why shouldn't we fear people? If we fear God, we have nothing to worry about here, right? If we fear God, we have nothing to worry about here. Fear of God elicits trust in God. When he's top on the pecking order, that elicits trust in us because of him. Uh, you see this in, in Isaiah 7 and 8. In Isaiah 7 and 8, there's this thing happening where the north is coming down to the south, right? Israel coming to Judah, and Israel's telling Judah that we and some of our allies are going to displace your king. We're going to put our person in charge, and we're just kind of going to absorb you, and they're afraid They know that their enemy has the power to do what their enemy has said to do. They've got plans in place to come in and to take over and to remove their king and to set a new king. Uh, And so in in Isaiah 8, we read this, this instruction from Isaiah. Uh, Let's see. From Isaiah 8, verse 12, Isaiah says, Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. In other words, don't dread, don't fear what they've said they're going to do. Don't worry about what they're planning, even though they have the power to bring it about. Verse 13, it says, The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one that you are to fear. He is the one that you are to dread. In other words, don't fear people around you with reverence, fear and submit yourself to the Lord and that leads you to trust him in spite of what's going on over here. Verse 16 and 17 from Isaiah 8 provide instruction. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. In other words, know God's word. Remember God's word. Meditate on God's word. Verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. I will hope 
in him. So how do we trust? We seal, we bind up, we hold tightly to his word. We wait on the Lord. We don't need to to step out in front of him. We don't need to take matters into our own hands. We don't need to make things right the way that we believe they need to be. We don't need to defend uh, ourselves. Wait on the Lord. Isaiah tells him, I will hope in him. Other passages say, I will put my faith in or I will put my trust in him. Trusting and suffering uh, seem to go hand in hand. Jesus, or Peter reminds his audience that isn't that what Jesus did for you? Didn't Jesus suffer for you? It says the just for the unjust. I can imagine Peter interacting with his listeners. I can imagine Peter interacting with these uh, churches and they say, but it's not fair. And can you see just Peter going to them and it wasn't fair that Jesus died for your sins. He was just you were unjust, that's not fair. I imagine someone else raising their hand and said, but do you know what the government's doing to us? Do you know how we're treated? Do you know that I had to close the doors of my business because I'm not allowed to operate a business in town anymore uh, as the person of faith in Yahweh? Imagine Peter looking at them and saying, yeah, that's not fair. That's really hard. You know what else was really hard? Jesus giving up his body. Jesus not calling down angels to rescue him. Jesus hanging up on that cross while he was beaten and whipped and mocked and spit on. He could have come down. He chose not to. That's not fair. The passage kind of takes a a strange turn in in 19 and 20. And so uh, let me just read that to you and I'll do my best in like three and a half minutes to make some sense of it. And maybe we'll just need to talk afterwards uh, to make more sense of it. Uh, It won't be the first time that I explain something unclearly. Uh, Let me read verses 19 and 20, kind of an unusual passage. Uh, Picking up in verse 18, it says, He, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, 19, in which he went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That's a strange term. Verse 20, because they normally, formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt of the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So from this text, some would suggest that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison or to spiritual powers in hell some sort of uh, proclamation a second chance to be saved some would say that this is evidence that jesus went to a place created for fallen angels in the period between his death and his resurrection Uh, some would say he went and preached to the people who were alive during noah's day who had since dead who had since died, who had rejected Noah's plea, rejected Noah's call to repent, and that Jesus was giving them a second chance. There's a bunch more other uh, ways to read this, um, but I would say consider the context of 1 Peter. What is Peter trying to help his listeners do? Stay the course. I know you're a spiritual minority in a pagan majority. Stay the course. 
be living proof of a loving God. Continue to live in an exemplary way so that others will see your life and find Jesus. And so when Peter here references what was going on in the time of Noah, there's a lot of similarities in the time of Noah and Peter's audience, right? Noah was a spiritual minority. Noah was pleading with the majority to repent and follow Jesus. Peter's listeners are a spiritual minority trying to live lives in such a way that the majority will see their lives and find Jesus. Judgment was coming for Noah's audience. Peter has reminded his listeners that the Lord stands opposed to the wicked. The Lord stands opposed to evil. Judgment is coming for those that have rejected Jesus for Peter's audience as well. So judgment is coming They're a spiritual minority in the midst of a wicked majority. And the call is for courage to stay the course, to do their part, to live exemplary lives, and to trust God to make all things right in the end. The sense I have just from reading this week and and previous study uh, is that Jesus here is proclaiming, is announcing a triumph over evil, over wicked, over those that have rejected him, over the spiritual powers that have contributed to the mess uh, that was humanity on the earth and saying it is finished once and for all such that Noah's audience knew it was finished once and for all, that their fate was certain such that Peter, Peter's audience, those living in the, as exiles would know that judgment is coming that Jesus has triumphed and to be encouraged to stay the course. So I would ask you maybe this morning, where do you need to be encouraged to stay the course? Where do you look around and have fear? Where do you look around and wonder if God's kingdom is advancing? Where do you look around and feeling like spiritually we're going backwards? Where do you need to be encouraged that Jesus has said it is finished once and for all? He wins, according to the last verse in the chapter, he now sits at the right hand of the Father with all powers under his authority, all powers under his dominion, all powers under his rule. Where do you need to be reminded this week that we win? Where do you need to be reminded that Jesus has won? The price has been paid. It is finished. How do we entrust our lives to the Lord and love well? By remembering it is finished. How do we entrust our futures to the Lord and suffer well in the present? by remembering that it is finished. I was reading from Luke 5. I think it's Luke 5. Yeah, I was reading from Luke 5 uh, the other morning, and that's the passage where the disciples are out, and they've done some fishing, and Jesus says, Hey, Peter. There's just so many good Peter stories in the Bible. We could fill lots of Sundays with them. But Jesus says, hey, Peter, throw your nets down over here. And Peter looks at Jesus like, dude, do you know anything about fishing? We've been doing this for hours. We've already tried that. Some of you are fishers, fishermen. Some of you know a lot more about fishing uh, than I do. Uh, the only times that I've gone fishing, we kind of moved around a lot. If one place wasn't working, we left. Peter looks at Jesus and he says, what do you know? Peter reluctantly throws the nets down and he has a huge haul of fish. And it's so cool what Peter says to Jesus. He just says, go away from me for I am a sinful man. 
Catching fish wasn't a matter of Peter's performance. It wasn't a matter of Peter's knowledge of fishing. It was a matter of Jesus' power. If our lives are going to help others find Christ, it's going to be by His power and by His methods. We just got to know our jobs and do our part as we entrust our lives to Him. Uh, some of us want to get uh, almost too smart for our own good. Uh, it's not about our strategy, although we want to be thoughtful about that. About knowing our part and doing our part because ultimately the, res- the results are up to Him. Peter's discovered that day that when Jesus tells you to do something, just do it. You don't have to understand. Just do it. I think the message from Peter to his audience, here's what God's commanded. Just do it and trust him for the results. Let's pray. Lord, speak to our hearts this morning all week long, in fact. Lord, and if there are some here who have been playing a spiritual game, maybe for weeks, months, years, maybe for decades, and there's no fruit, Lord, make those incredibly uncomfortable. Such that they wouldn't even leave today without saying, I've got to talk to someone and got to make sense of this because I think that's me. Lord, I confess there are so many reasons that I have used to justify not blessing those who have not blessed me. Wanting to return evil for evil, that that has been in my heart. Lord, we ask that you invite us this week and and teach us how to entrust our lives to you. And we understand that that usually means difficult because we usually don't take our hands off the steering wheel until you pry them off. And so, Lord, pry our hands off the steering wheel so that we can discover it's so much better when you drive. Lord, we, we know that in our heads, but we don't in our hearts. Help us to discover even this week that you are worthy of entrusting our entire life to you. Lord, without that, we won't be able to live lives that cause others to find Christ. Thank you for your patience with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.